0: We're going to look at a message today I call, Can You See It? Can You See It? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. Let's all stand together at this time as we reference uh, the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen, are eternal. May God bless the reading of His Word today. It's my prayer. You may be seated. Can you see it? Can you see it? There is a common foundational religious belief in an unseen, invisible, if you will, reality. It is not unique to Christianity. It reaches across a religious spectrum So that almost inherently every religious belief in the world believes in an unseen, an invisible reality. Even the religion of science. Yes, I called it the religion of science. The scientists may be quick to howl or call foul over that statement. Uh, But you know, the fact is that science postulates the existence of something they call dark matter, though it isn't matter at all. They believe in dark energy, though it isn't energy at all. They use it to explain how the stars, with their accompanying planets and moons, all move within their galaxy and their predictable structure. Structure that can be seen so that every galaxy that we've ever discovered has stars moving in their courses. Forming those beautiful spirals and other things that we see. The reason they talk about uh, dark matter, of course, is because there isn't enough matter that we can identify in the whole universe to create enough gravity to keep the stars moving in their course. It's not... It's not gravity. There's, there's not enough mass there. So they, they believe in dark matter, though they don't have any of it. They believe in dark energy as well. Science believes in dark energy because science knows that if something starts this way, if you launch any projectile anywhere, it's only going to go so long it begins to slow down from the minute that it's launched unless some other energy comes along and exerts force upon it whatever is set in motion is going to slow down so of course the universe is slowing down and in fact science believed that for a long long time until just a a couple of decades ago they discovered that the universe is not in fact slowing down it's expanding isn't that interesting and so they believe of course there has to be some form of energy dark energy they call it that is speeding it up something out there they it cannot prove it it cannot see it science believes life spontaneously generated itself that's not difficult it's impossible So, science believes then in the impossible. Science believes in things it can't prove. Science believes in things it cannot see. So, yes, I call science a religion in this area uh, because it has crossed the line to believe in things it cannot prove and cannot see and knows to be impossible. It has many, many believers. Let me be quick to point out, of course, as I have many times before, that there is an alternative view. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 tells us that all things were created by Jesus Christ. That he is before all things. in verse 17. And by him all things consist. Uh, the Greek word for consist in that passage is synesteo, And it means it is set in place. It is held or how about this one? Banded together. What holds the stars together? The same one who made them. He created all things and he holds them all together. John tells us in John chapter 1 and verse 1 in him, that's in Jesus Christ, is life. And this life is the light of men. Fundamental revelation to us of God is the existence of life. The Christian faith, though, has always believed in the unseen. And while many other religions have their own belief in the unseen, we are the ones that have God's word on the unseen world. We believe in it. We always have. It starts with God himself. The writer of the book of Hebrews says this of Moses in verse 27 of chapter 11, By faith he, that's Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. God revealed himself, you see, as the invisible God. Imagine entering the home of almost anyone in the ancient world where there was a shelf prominently displayed in even a meager house. And on that shelf would be the images of the gods they worshipped. We call them idols. Larger Im- images would adorn the countryside and strategic places around, whether they were made of wood or of stone or Or whether they were made of gold and silver in the villages, in the cities, most prominently in the temples that bore their name. Walk in a temple made to any god and you would see the image of that god prominently displayed. But if you went into the home of a faithful Jewish person, you would see no idols If you go in the temple of God in Jerusalem, you would see no image. In fact, God's very first commandment to his people was, Do not make any graven. That word graven means carved or formed by human hands. No graven image. No image of God was in the temple. It's a foundational principle. You see, they worshiped the invisible God, the one true God. And the reason that it was so important for them to refuse to make any graven image of God was because there would be times when God would take on a physical form or a visible form. And whenever God did that, it was the exclusive domain of the third person of the Godhead. God the Son. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The exclusive domain anytime God took on a physical form or took on a visible form, that was the work of the Son. No image made by human hands could ever rival that magnificent manifestation. God refused to allow what he and he alone could do, and that is assume physical form, so that there would be a Walking and talking, visible God that you could commune with. And even more importantly, who would die on the cruel cross for your sins and mine in our place. He was made a little lower than the angels, the writer of the book of Hebrews says. And yet he's crowned with glory and honor because he, by the grace of God, would taste death for every man. That's your God. And so God refused to allow man to make images, visible manifestations of him. Because that was, that was what God the Son was going to do. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Now we could view and many do Jesus as a historical figure. Like George Washington is a historical figure, Abraham Lincoln a historical figure, or if you prefer a more ancient figure, Augustus Caesar, for example. We don't doubt their existence. What they did is a matter of historical record. Uh, But Jesus is unique among all other historical figures for one simple reason. He's still alive. (laughs) Amen. He's still alive. Oh, but he died. Yes, he did, but he didn't stay dead. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again. We serve the living Lord Jesus Christ. We see Jesus, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Yes, we do. And yet our text today tells us that our faith still relates to things unseen. The unseen world. Now, Paul, in, in our passage here in In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is talking about the subject of human suffering. That's something we see all too well and all too frequently. He speaks of persecutions and perils. He speaks of sickness and of dying. He speaks of falling and of failing. All of these things we are well familiar with. Do we see these things? Oh, yes, yes, we sure do. But above and beyond all those things that we can see, Paul tells us, we don't just look at the things that we can see, but we look at the things that we cannot see. You may think that's a contradiction. It's not. Because we look at the things that are not seen through the eyes of faith, through the eyes of our hearts, the Bible says. To put it simply, we believe. We believe. So we look beyond all the things that we can see into this unseen world. And I want to share some things about it today. The first thing is I want you to see the reality of it. The reality of things not seen. Hebrews 11 and 3 puts it this way. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now, in our scientifically enlightened world today, we might think we understand that statement very well. After all, we have discovered the existence of the atom, which was once called, and it may still be, I don't know, but it was once called the basic or foundational building block of all matter, so small as to be unseen, yet the atom exists and molecules exist. But this passage goes beyond that. All of the visible things of the universe, we could say, are made of things that are invisible, but even the atoms were made by God Himself. We can't see God, but God spoke everything in the universe into existence, and they're all made of this same atomic structure, whether the far reaches of the most distant stars in space or the dirt under our feet. Or the skin on our bodies, or the virus that makes us cough and sneeze. They all have the same basic atomic structure. Our creative God could take carbon, for example, and make a diamond. And many of you ladies this morning have testament uh, that you're wearing somewhere to that fact. Interestingly, humanity has duplicated the process of making carbon into Lab-grown diamonds with the same identical look, texture, shape, and composition of naturally formed diamonds. They say, how can you tell the difference between them? There's only one way. The ones that are grown in a lab are absolutely flawless, while all natural diamonds, they say, contain flaws. All of them do. In a way, then, you could say that we maybe have improved on the process of making diamonds. Are they real? Yeah, go buy one and see how much you pay for it. But, you know, that same carbon makes life. And while we can duplicate the process by which carbon is made into a diamond, we can't make even the most simple forms of life. Not even an amoeba. Not a paramecium. Not a mosquito. Not a red bug. Nothing. We can't make a butter bean, Nothing. Because those things have life in them. You see, our great God has made all of the universe out of this same atomic structure. Things not seen, but now God even made those things that aren't seen. He's the one that made that atomic structure. Aren't you glad we serve this great God this morning? There's a principle of thermodynamics that says matter cannot be created or destroyed. We can only change its form. If we speak scientifically then, we would say that the things that are seen, the physical uh, universe, cannot be destroyed. It is eternal. But I would have to differ with that because the same God who created this universe also can take it out of existence and ultimately create it again in another form. We know that in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 12 because he says, Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God... Wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven, new heavens, and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, tells us emphatically that the things which are seen are temporary. And that makes sense in light of what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. The elemental structure of the universe God created will one day be dismantled and reformed by the same God who made it the first time. On the other hand, there are unseen things. The unseen things that Paul was speaking of in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And those unseen things are truly... Eternal. We look not then at the things that are seen. We look at the unseen things that are eternal. In that sense, then we see that everything that is seen is made of the things that are unseen. And that was the unseen power of God when he spoke it all into existence. And not only that, but the unseen then is going to remain after everything else is destroyed. So you might ask me today, Brother Rich, do you really believe in this unseen world? Yes, I believe it's real. In fact, I believe it's more real than this is. Because number one, it was here first, and it's going to last longer. We look not at the things which are seen. Everything that is seen is made of things unseen. And the things that are unseen, then, God says, are eternal. You've never seen a soul. You've never seen Jesus. You've never seen heaven. You've never seen God. You've never seen the Holy Spirit. You've never seen an angel unless it was unawares. Be not forgetful, the Bible says, to entertain strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Is the unseen world real? Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Then let's look at the resources, the reality of the unseen, of the things not seen. Now let's look at the resources. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 10, that same passage, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us. But life in you. As Paul describes our suffering here in the seen world. He reminds us of something. Though we don't often think of it this way. We live all of our lives in the land of the dying. But we're headed to the land of the living. We live all our life in the land of the dying. Moving on toward the land of the living. Our suffering. Yes, our sorrows. Our struggles. Even our death will manifest that there is something else in us, the great unseen life of Jesus Christ. The great theologian Ronnie Dunn once quoted an old man named Wrigley. That's all we know about him. He responded to his question. He said, man, how do you keep from going crazy as old man Wrigley had related the tragedy of losing his wife and his baby And old man Wrigley said, I raise my hands, I bow my head. I'm finding more and more truth in the words written in red. They tell me, those words, they tell me that there's more to life than just what I can see. I believe. I believe. No, Ronnie Ronnie Dunn's not a a theologian by profession, of course. He's a country music singer. and In addition to that great song that he wrote, he's written a lot of songs that were pretty lousy, really. But, uh, I mean, they had a good beat and they were fun to dance to, but the, the words really weren't all that good. But that one, oh, I love that song, I believe. I could sing it right now. Not as well as he could. What a message. I I believe that there's more to life than just what I can see. You believe that too or you wouldn't be here today. There's more to life than just what you can see. And when tragedy comes, when difficult comes, when difficulty comes, when sorrow comes, when persecution lays its heavy hand on us, when we're picked on or mocked, laughed at because of our faith, We need a vision of the unseen world. We need that faith that lets us see beyond what we can see to where there's more to life. And though we can identify so well with old man Wrigley, the Old Testament gives us an even greater example. One of my favorite Old Testament Bible stories. The king of Syria, you see, was at war with Israel. And he decided that what they needed to do was take out the king of Israel. And so they set up an elaborate plot. They watched him, where he went, and how he traveled. And and they set an assassination attempt in place. But the Lord, God warned the prophet Elisha of what they were going to do, and the prophet Elisha warned the king. He told them, "They're going to wait for you here, so stay away from you here." And he didn't go that way. They kept trying, but every time they'd lay a snare for him, a plot for him to assassinate the king of Israel, Elisha was warning him. Well, the king of Syria figured out, man, we've got a mole. We've got a leak. Somebody is in my cabinet that's telling them secrets. But they said, no, 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 no. you got to understand. Uh, Israel, the king of Israel, has got a man there. and his, his name is Elisha. And what you whisper, he says, in your bedroom, Elisha hears. That's what he said. Well, the king of Syria said, well, we'll take care of this. We'll just send out a squad of soldiers to take care of Elisha. And they did. They, they sent a great army. To kill Elisha, Elisha's servant, unnamed in that passage, would say, Man, Elisha, look, there's an army coming. He was all afraid, all upset. But I love what Elisha said in response. It's in 2 Kings 6 and 16. So he answered, that's Elisha, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. How many of you know that that army didn't arrest Elisha that day? (laughs) Yeah, I won't spoil it for you. Y'all are going to go home and read this after church today. Read the story if you've never read it, 2 Kings 6 and 16. Do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. See, there are those seasons of distress and grief when our soul often finds relief. In times of fear, we see the things that are not seen and know that God is watching over us. God is providing for us. And even if death comes, we're dealing with something that has no sting. Even if the grave comes, we are dealing with something that has no victory because when a believer in Christ dies, we've already said it, they move from the land of the dying to the land of the living. Remember Moses who endured as seeing him who is invisible? He chose to endure affliction uh, as a child of God rather than enjoying the pleasures of sin, which were but for a season. That's what Hebrews 11 told us. So not only in times of fear and in times of distress or times of sorrow are we comforted and protected by seeing that unseen world. Also in times of temptation. Why did Moses choose to suffer affliction with the people of God when he could have enjoyed all the pleasures of being a member of the royal family of the most powerful and wealthy land of the world? Why would he turn his back on all of that? Well, because he saw the unseen world. And because he saw the one who was invisible. He knew that his accountability to God was certainly more important than any pleasure that sin could bring him for just a while. You see, when we are tempted, we also need to look into that invisible world. We'll think of it. And think of our great God and how we're accountable to him. Nothing equips us better to deal with temptation than remembering that we have eternity ahead of us. And a judgment of God to face. The resources then of this unseen world. They comfort us in our times of persecution. They protect us in our times of fear. And they deliver us from The reality of temptation that sometimes pulls us so strongly. But all it takes is just to close our eyes for a moment. And contemplate that unseen world. It's a powerful, powerful deterrent to sinful behavior. So we see the reality then of the unseen world. We see then the resources of the unseen world. Lastly, the resistance to the unseen world. We see it right in our text today. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The great resistors to the unseen world. The unseen world is real, it has resources available to us, but it's difficult for us to get past what this passage calls the things that are seen. What we see what we touch, what we feel, what we taste, what we smell, our senses. This is why so many religions substitute idolatry for worshiping the one true God. They want a God they can see and touch. This is why people will turn to rituals so easily because it's a lot easier for us to go through some expression, to pray over some beads or any one of all these other things that we could do, something we've memorized, light a candle, some other expression. It's so much easier to have some tangible thing we can see, touch, feel, smell, taste than to believe in the invisible God. It's not only our sensory perception, but it's also our knowledge, whether factual or intuitive, that often works against the unseen world. We know what we know. That speaks of what we have learned factually and also what we have experienced. We learn, for example, that 2 plus 2 equals 4. We learn our ABCs. How do we learn them? We learn them, for the most part, by teachers who teach us. They demonstrate, then, this truth to us. And we have, then, factual information that is ours because we were taught by someone we trusted But then later on, some of those same teachers, maybe not the same ones, might teach us that the universe created itself. You see, a lot of things that we learn from trusted people in positions of authority may not be factual at all. But it's not just what we learn as facts. Well, I know what I know, yeah? Yeah. But we also learn intuitively and that goes along with what we feel so that our feelings often work against the things that are seen. This is where knowledge combines with our emotions. One writer warned us that the shallowest part of our nature, the the part of our nature most easily persuaded is our emotions. God doesn't do his deepest work in our shallowest part. But they are powerful. We think and we feel, and when we put those things together, uh, that seems to make what we know come alive. I'll illustrate this today by ex- expressing something that I heard a man say who's long since gone on to be with the Lord, and I do believe he was truly saved. But he said it a lot, and I, began, I came to learn that he meant it a whole lot. He'd say, well, Preacher, I believe in a heartfelt religion. Now, you might say that, and you might mean something different than he did. But I I learned that he meant it uh, just completely. You see, when he was feeling it, it was good. But when he stopped feeling, then it wasn't good anymore. If he could go into a church where he felt it, whatever it was, this is a good church. But if he stopped feeling it, he was down the road. That man had been a member of every church within reasonable driving resistance, some several times. A lot of people today, you see, are hooked on that same kind of feeling. That's why so many churches all over the country try to make sure that church always feels good. I'm going to tell you this morning, church is not always going to feel good. If you come in here with a life full of sin and rejection and rebellion, you come in here lost and you leave out feeling good, I don't think I've done my job. I'm not here to try to make us feel better about living in rebellion against God. Church doesn't always feel good. It's not supposed to. What's our goal then? Well, Romans 10, 17 says that the best faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, God works through the Holy Spirit and through the scriptures so that our faith grows. Because, you see, we walk by faith. God doesn't do his deepest work in our shallowest parts. Our emotions so easily moved. There are times when you feel like going to church. And there are times when you don't. There are times when you won't feel like praying. You won't feel like you should give. You won't feel like anything is making any difference at all. There are times when your emotions are absolutely going to overwhelm you. Our sensory perception then works against the resources and the reality of the unseen world because we can't, we can't experience it in a sensory way. Our knowledge, whether factual or intuitive, works against the things sometimes that are not seen. But also our reason works against the things that are not seen. Rationality. The things that are not seen just don't make sense. We can't explain them. Oftentimes in our world, reason is presented as an alternative to faith. As if being a person of reason, well, I'm a rational person, so I'm not a religious person. But Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, God said, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God did not say, come here and let's reason this thing out so he could talk to us about the creation of the heavens and the earth. I don't think our brains have developed enough where we're ever going to figure all of that out. He didn't say, let's come and reason together about the existence of the Trinity. I don't think our brains are big enough to figure all that out. But what God said, let's come and reason together is about our sin. Because, you see, that is the one thing that's going to have to be dealt with if we're going to have a relationship with the living God. And we would never, ever choose the plan that God has chosen for us. We'd never figure that out. If we put our own human reason to work against this whole subject of redemption, we'd discard it. Surely I've got to do something. But the work of redemption is done. It was done by Jesus Christ. Proverbs 14 warns us, "As a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. So God does not. Call us to put our reason aside. He just wants us to reason about one simple question. What are you going to do about it? Ladies and gentlemen. What are you going to do about your sin? How are you going to deal with your sin? And isn't that a great invitation? Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God will wipe your sins away. Wow. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us famously that faith is a substance of things hoped for. And the evidence of things not seen. It is our faith that projects itself then into the unseen. To enable us then to know that God is. To know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. To see the spiritual side of us. Though we can't see it. We know there's something more inside of me. And there's more to life than just what I can see. One more passage today and we're done. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, there's more to life than just what you can see. And Sometimes it might seem, that the, seem like the forces of this world and the powers of this world are winning the day. They're not. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are the ones who are going to overcome. And there is a means by which we can overcome the world, and that is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have believed on the Lord. We live by faith. We walk by faith. Our faith uh, moves us along day after day and moment by moment and by moment and moment. And what is the world going to do exactly to you? Who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, they might kill me. <laughs> yeah, they might. Oh, Paul uh, dealt with that one a long time ago when he said to me to live as Christ and to die as what? I'm glad y'all know that passage. The worst thing they do to us is kill us, and all they do is give us a promotion. This is the victory, 1 John tells us. Even our faith. See, we're on the winning team. We're on the winning side. Because we see the unseen world. That's why we give so great attention and so much importance. Even in messages like this. Why we preach them. Why we uh, go again and again to the truth of scripture. Why we call it up. Why we teach our classes. Why we run a WANA program. Why we have messages like this and services like this. Why do we do it? To build our faith so that we'd understand more about what God has revealed to us. So it isn't something maybe that we used to think about, but it's come real in our heart today. I hope you can leave out of this service today. And as you drive out of this parking lot looking at the things that you're seeing, please take a look. Look twice. Yeah, it's dangerous out there. But as you're looking at the things that aren't seen, you remember there's more to life than just what I can see. Question I have for you today, and for all of you maybe watching by home, from home by TV at home or computer, whatever. Then, have you believed? It all starts there. Not just believing that God exists, not just believing that the world was made by God and is kept in place by God, but believing that God took on human flesh. The form of God the Son was made in the likeness of men. And he submitted himself then and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So that here you are in your sins, but there Jesus Christ has died for your sins. And you simply believe on him. You confess it. Romans chapter 10 tells us. That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we confess it. Tell it. Tell it first of all to Him. Lord, I believe. And then tell somebody else. You can walk this aisle in just a few minutes and tell me. I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell you. Let's go up to the baptistry. Maybe not right away. But that's that's what we're going to say. If you could call. Send me a text or an email. I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd love to be able to share more because, you see, that's just the start. You'll live all your life then believing in the invisible, seeing the unseeable, knowing the unknowable, which is really knowable because the Spirit of God reveals it to you. Let's stand together, please.